0: Hey everybody and welcome back to Ty's Tech Line. I'm your host Tyler Harrington and thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to have you here today and for today's episode. So to give a little background to this episode, a couple weeks ago, uh, Catherine Guidry, who's going to be on the show today, she sent me an email and she said, hey Ty, I have this idea for a podcast episode. I'd love to be on and chat about it. What do you think? So I responded back I said, sure, we set up a time and bada bing, bada boom. There you go. We've got a podcast episode. So I just wanted to let you guys know out there, if you have an idea for a podcast episode, if you say, I'd love to talk to Ty about this, I'd love to be on Ty's tech line, send me an email. So if you go to my Instagram at Tyler Harrington and you click on the link in my bio there is a link on there that you can go and you can fill out a form to be a guest on the show there's no requirement you don't have to be a professional in what you want to talk about or anything like that All you really have to have is an idea and a willingness to get on here and chat with me for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour about whatever it is. So if you have any sort of idea, something you'd like to chat about, something you'd want to have on the podcast, go on over there, fill fill that out, and I'd love to have you on. And that's exactly what Catherine did, and that's how we got here today. So just a little bit of a background on Catherine. Catherine is a Louisiana-based hybrid photographer. So hybrid basically means that she shoots both film and digital. And this is becoming extremely, extremely popular in the wedding filmmaking industry today. There are more and more people who are starting to jump into the world of film photography, but there's a lot more to it than might meet the eye. So I wanted to have Catherine on the podcast, more like Catherine had the idea to be on the podcast to chat about film photography, everything that goes into it, the whole process that's involved, how she got started and everything like that. So for those of you who may not know, I actually do have a background in photography, although we do primarily video work now. I actually do have a long history of photography. My first photography class I ever took all the way back in high school was a film photography class. And then all throughout college, I actually took a bunch of photography classes as part of my art major. I have a graphic design degree. And as a part of that, I had to take a bunch of different types of film photography classes. So I'm actually relatively familiar with the film photography process on more of a 35 millimeter Basis. However, Catherine is going to talk to you guys about the difference between 35 millimeter film, 120 film, everything that goes into getting started in film photography for weddings and portraits and those types of things. So this is a really awesome conversation. Catherine is so, so fun. You can definitely tell she's from Louisiana. She has an awesome accent. And I hope you guys really enjoy this conversation. Alrighty, everybody. Today on the podcast, we have Catherine Gidry. Catherine, thank you so much for being on the podcast. How's it going today?
1: Oh, it's awesome. I'm so excited to be on the podcast with you.
0: So, Catherine, for everyone out there who may not know who you are, could you just real quickly tell us who you are, what you do, and sort of what you're all about?
1: Yeah. Gosh, that's such a crazy question. Like, who am I? <laughs> um, who are you? I am a Louisiana-based film and digital photographer, so I do photograph hybrid. Um, The majority of my business is focused around wedding photography. That's pretty much been the bulk of my business for about the past almost 10 years, actually. And recently, I've been dabbling more into other areas of photography. So just started branching out into newborns, family. Um, I've always done a little bit of commercial and product photography, but I'm really just trying to Spread my wings a little bit this year and and try some things different um, than I have been before. But yeah, um, what else could I say? I'm a southern southern girl, born and raised. I've always been from here.
0: Yes, people can probably tell from your accent. And you're from Louisiana, correct? Yes, Okay, I'm so from Louisiana. I'm gonna ask you a question. I'm gonna preface it by saying I know nothing about the geography of Louisiana, but okay. what part of Louisiana are you from?
1: Okay, oh, that's a really good question. So originally, I'm from a super small town called Morgan City. Like, people only know about Morgan City if they've driven past it.
0: <laughs> Got it, okay. <laughs> um, so is this like north, south? Right,
1: um, it's pretty far south. Okay. And um, pretty central to the state. And then for college, I studied architecture. I went to the University of Louisiana at Lafayette and I lived here following college. So I went here for undergrad and grad school. Um, And then after graduate school, I stayed here for another, I guess, about five years. And then I relocated to New Orleans for a little while. We lived there. My husband and I, uh, we weren't married at the time, but we were living there in New Orleans and we freaking love New Orleans. It is like My favorite, I love to travel, but New Orleans, I think will forever be my favorite city in the entire world.
0: That's, that's good. Okay. So you said it's New Orleans. So you heard it right here from the source people. It's New Orleans, yes. not New Orleans. Right. Correct. Is that a big debate within Louisiana or just people outside of Louisiana? I mean,
1: pretty much if you're from here, you say New Orleans. I feel like if okay. you say New Orleans, you're probably not from here. And gotcha. okay. <laughs> there's also Perfect. several city, uh, several streets within the city that are pretty confusing, even for locals mm. like Chapitulis or Calliope or Calliope. Like everyone says the street names a little differently. So So, but yeah, the South is pretty fun. So I'm assuming you've never been here.
0: No. Okay. So Ash and I always talk about, we love to travel and we've traveled all over the world, but I want to be doing more traveling within the U S that's like one of my goals for this year And New Orleans is at the top of my list for places to go visit because I've always heard such great things about it. And I know the food is so great and the culture is so great. So that's high, high, high on my list of places to go, but we have never been.
1: Honestly, like I said, we've been in the country, out of the country. I love to travel within the U S and New Orleans it's such a special place. I definitely recommend you come. There's like live music everywhere. I mean, you, you literally cannot go anywhere without hearing music. That's amazing. If you walk in and out of a store a restaurant on the street, like there's just music everywhere. And yeah, the food's incredible.
0: Yes. I've heard nothing but good things. It sounds to me sort of like a combination of Nashville and like Charleston, South Carolina, yes. kind of mixed together, but in this like very, you know, the whole Cajun flair and all that sort of stuff. So it sounds very, it yeah. sounds like right down our alley. We love to eat. We love to travel. We love music. So we'll definitely have to make a trip one of these days. You'd
1: love it. Yeah. And actually, so right now we are back in Lafayette. Um, We are also currently trying to decide where we want to be because a lot of my work is in the New Orleans area, but I still have um, a portion that's here and I, you know, have a lot of friends and family here in Lafayette. So the struggle is real, trying to figure out where we wanna be, but I'm just trusting that it'll all work out. Yeah,
0: so how far is it in a drive from where you are to New Orleans?
1: It's about two and a half hours.
0: Two and a half hours, okay, so that's pretty That's that's pretty significant. It's a pretty significant distance. drive
1: yeah. and I make it, um, on average, like one to two times a week.
0: Oh, wow, yeah, so, especially if you're branching out into non-wedding stuff. You've got yeah. more frequent shoots and stuff like that. Yeah, that makes it hard. Yeah, exactly. So what drew exactly. you guys back to where you are now?
1: Friends and family.
0: Friends and family, okay, Yeah. Gotcha.
1: And also, like, let's be honest, the price to live in New Orleans I mean, granted, compared to other... So tell me, where, where are you based?
0: So we live in Richmond, which is okay. about an hour and a half, two hours south of D.C.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So I know places like D.C., um, San Diego, San Francisco, L.A., like it's really expensive. But compared to Lafayette, the housing market in New Orleans is... I mean, I'd say a little bit more than twice as much wow, yeah. to own, or at least in the areas where we want to live. So that's kind of a big part of what drew us here too, is because we wanted to own. Um, and now that we've lived in the house that we owned for like two and a half years, it's like, okay, cool. Like we've done that. Do we want to stay? You know, so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, that's always hard. The, the draw of having family is really nice. We like Richmond because we're really centrally located. My, I grew up in the Northern Virginia area, right outside of DC. And my parents still live up there. Ashley's family is from more of like Southern Central Virginia. So they live about two and a half, three hours to our west and then Ash has other family that lives in like the Virginia Beach like coastal areas so Richmond is great because we're about two and a half three hours from pretty much everything which you know isn't super close to anything but it's nice because it's not we don't have ever have to drive you know five or six hours to get somewhere which yeah if we lived on one extreme or the other we might have to so
1: Exactly. No, awesome. that's nice. That's really, really cool. It seems like y'all are in a good a good spot for your life and your lifestyle.
0: Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect for us. And you said you're a newlywed. So when did you guys get married? How long ago was that?
1: Um, December of 2015.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's great. And your husband's name is Brad Michael, which I think is an awesome name. Thanks. Does he go by Brad Michael? Like that's what everyone da- calls him?
1: He does. Da- well, he goes by Brad. Okay. But for anything design or business wise, he'll go by Brad Brad Michael. Like he plays bass. So for his music and then cool. for his architecture. So he actually does practice architecture and he also does everything for the podcast tech wise. I know you're that's a tech what I guy. Heard. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah.
0: That's so great. Um, okay. So you mentioned architecture. So let's talk about that a little bit. So I know okay. that I read on your website that you actually were in architecture. You guys were both apparently in the architecture world. Yep. And while doing that, you sort of found your love for photography. So I'd love to hear a little bit about of that backstory of how you transferred from architecture into photography and side note, did you guys meet in school? Is that how you guys met?
1: Yes, we did. Okay. We met while I was in, uh, so I'm a little bit older than Brad. Um, I was actually- All right, oh, I was all right actually, Brad, I right. see you. <laughs> I was actually like supervising him on the project we were working on in graduate school. We were building a deck, which I don't even know why I was supervising him because like he knows way more about building than me. But um, yeah, we were building this deck and so I was supervising him on this project called Beausoleil we built this solar home and went to DC and competed, but anywho. Yeah. So that's where we met as far as my backstory into photography. So in my second year of college, I was in architecture school and my boss at the time basically volunteered for me to shoot this event. A friend of hers was looking to hire somebody just for extra cash to photograph at, it was like a high school dance or something. So I literally had no interest in photography other than that growing up, of course, I did tend to be the one documenting things. I actually watched a home video of mine, um, like the other day, and I I was literally carrying this video camera with me everywhere. I guess I just find joy in documenting what's happening, maybe because my memory is so horrible. Um, But whenever she referred me for this job, I really didn't anticipate what was to come. So, did you have
0: a camera already or anything no. like that? Or how did she know that you would even be able to do what she wanted?
1: Well, I mean, so obviously I had that video camera that I talked about and then I had like a point and shoot for architecture school that I mm-hmm. used to document my projects. But no, like when I showed up, he provided all the gear. It was very easy. It was just like gripping and grins and candids and stuff like that. Walking gotcha, around. Yeah. Um, but funny story his name was also Brad, not my husband, Brad, but his name was Brad. And we actually did start dating. Oh wow. And, and, um, so he was pretty instrumental to my photography career because I got to see the business side of it. Although I wasn't interested in the type of work he did. So he did mainly like school and event photography. Um, I just really admired that he was doing something where he could be out on about out and about on the go. And every day was different. And I just was really intrigued by photography in general. Well, I would say this was still pretty much in the early years of Facebook.
0: And mm-hmm. so, yeah. So what year was this about? It was like so
1: 2006. A... Okay. Okay. Um, so whenever I was one day on Facebook, kind of like looking around, I came across this wedding album and I, it's, it's so funny thinking back to it, but like that wedding album completely was like a light bulb for me because I had never seen wedding photography done in that way. Mm, it was just mm-hmm. really creative. It was really different and artistic. And I was like, Oh, like this is wedding photography. And it just sent me in a spiral. I became really intrigued about wedding photography. I started reading about it, learning about it. Um, I mean, I would say until two, three in the morning, like on forums and blogs and
0: yeah. Cause this was like the peak of like wedding blogs and this yes. is kind of like the transition right in that like 2008, 2009 timeframe yeah. where yeah, wedding photography completely flipped on its head and became kind of what we know it as today. Whereas before it was very like male dominated and very like, just like show up, take the photos, no relationship, none of that sort of stuff. So you yes. you're kind of right in that sweet spot of everything starting to get
1: A hundred percent. And like, even at the time, I think Jasmine Starr was like up on the rise and Mm -hmm. she, you know, was blogging a lot. And I remember reading every single blog post she had ever written and just really doing everything that I could to soak up the knowledge. And so I told that other Brad (laughs) at the time, I was like, I want to photograph weddings. Well, obviously our relationship ended, but our friendship didn't. So he referred me to my first bride and photographed my first client Loved it. A friend of my mom's hired me for her wedding. And so I shot probably like, I don't even know the exact number, but maybe somewhere between like eight and 11 weddings in grad school. Okay. And then by the time I finished graduate school, I just decided, I don't think I want to do architecture. Like I really, really want to do wedding photography and I feel like I can, and I just need to make it work. Like I really, really want to do this for a living.
0: So you'd like purchase cameras and stuff like that. I'm assuming that you started off digital. With everything. Yes.
1: yes. I started off digital. I started my, bu- I basically have done everything in my business debt-free. So. That's great. Um, From the bottom, literally like I would get paid a couple of hundred dollars and I would rent a camera. I didn't even buy it because I didn't have enough money to buy it. I don't even think I had a credit card at the time. Wow. And so very, very slowly I built up my gear. So I started with, I think at the time I had like a Nikon, is it like a 2D, 2 or I don't even remember what it was anymore. D 700 was, I think my first professional camera, but before okay. that there was another camera that I bought. Cause it's been so long. Do you remember? Do you shoot Nikon?
0: I, I see. I don't shoot. So I was going to ask. Okay. So you're an Nikon girl. Yeah. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I don't, I've always been Canon always oh, okay. since the beginning. So I'm not as familiar, but it was probably, yeah, like, cause they have like the D like seven, Fifty, so maybe it, it was, was like pre the D, that. Like it was like two, like two fifty or something like that. It was yeah. like I
1: want to say it was like D two hundred or D three hundred. Yeah, yeah. I think it was
0: right. the yeah. D three
1: hundred. And then um, my next camera after that was the D. 700 I believe and then the D3X D3S excuse me which is what I'm shooting with now and okay. I've actually tried the D5 and I didn't like it so yeah. I'm still at the D, I'm still with the D3S right now and I'm just kind of experimenting with um like digital backs. I've been looking at medium format digital cameras, but of course I pair that with my contacts. So the contact six four five is my film camera that I use that I'm obsessed with.
0: Which is like the staple film camera that pretty much like everyone goes with these days. I right. W- I
1: would say or so. Or I would say yeah. so. Like that or the Mamiya. But mm-hmm. yeah, or the Pentax. I I love the Contacts because of the the lens and the bokeh on it. It's so right. beautiful. And also knowing that so many photographers that I trust and have followed for so long do shoot with the contacts.
0: Yeah, that's the one I, I see everybody shooting with. That's the one I'm most, I see everybody has. But okay, so before we get too far into that, because I can we can talk about that all day. Yeah. Let's back up one second. Okay. So how did you first decide, okay, you're doing all this, you're shooting weddings, yep. you're shooting digital, you've got your building up your Nikon gear. When did you sort of get introduced to film photography? And when did you sort of start making that transition into doing that?
1: Yes, I would say that was probably about three or four years ago, I think it was like 2014, um, fall of 2014. And a friend of mine started dabbling in film and talked to me about how, you know, she was experimenting with, she was shooting 35 millimeter film. But when I saw the images, I was like, Oh wow. Like this is the look that I'm in love with this is the look that I've been trying to get to but can't get my images to look this way and sure enough when I started really getting into film photography and learning about it I realized that the photographers I aspired to be like like the Elizabeth Messina's the Jose Villas like Katie Mary Caroline Train like they shoot film and so that was kind of like an aha moment for me um, I bought a contacts. I bought Jose's v- book, fine art weddings. I think you can still get that anywhere. And I decided I was going to attend his workshop. Okay. So I went out to Jose's workshop. I had only shot a few rolls of film at that point. Um, funny story, actually, I didn't even know how to roll the film. I remember oh <laughs> like sitting on the floor of my friend's house, watching a YouTube video of a man speaking French, oh trying gosh. to like figure out how he rolled the film and rolling films like kind of confusing. So the fact that he spoke French and I couldn't slow the video down, I was anyway figured it out ape was able to shoot a few roles but really at the workshop that was a huge milestone for me i got to see jose shoot chat with him and joel met a lot of other film shooters that were kind of in the same place that i was and test it out like shoot actual models shoot actual details um learn when to shoot what film stock and so after that It was just a matter of practicing, learning, shooting. Um, I did attend two other workshops, Jonathan Canless's workshop and Caroline Tran's Propel workshop. But yeah, a lot of it was just like making mistakes. And I mean, the podcast that we do is called Mistakes Make Magic. So I feel like literally I have 100 million mistakes I could say, but I've made some pretty big film mistakes that... I think have helped me feel more confident in shooting film. So
0: that's one of the interesting things about shooting film. There is so many more things that can go wrong, right? And it's just, it's a lot different than digital. Even if you're the most proficient digital shooter in the world, you know, everything there is to know about digital photography and you understand light and all that stuff. There's a whole side of film photography that's not only artistic, but also technical, like you were saying, and there's just so many more factors that are at play. So I want to talk about that a little bit. So what so for somebody who's maybe considering this, who's just like you, who's like, right, I'm shooting digital. I really love the look of film. I can't quite get my digital files to look the way I want them to in film. What is sort of the process, all the things you're going to need to know and just the technical things you're going to need to have in order to make this jump into the film world? So let's start with cameras. So real quickly, maybe you, you can explain the difference between 35 millimeter film and medium. What What, what is the correct definition for what the contact shoots is it can cons- medium medium
1: format medium f- or 120 format,
0: yeah 120 that's it so medium format or 120 mm-hmm. explain real quickly the difference between those two okay
1: things. so a medium format camera which is what I primarily shoot with would be like the contact 645 and it shoots 120 film which is basically a larger negative so on the spool when you're looking at the film it's about three and a half four inches maybe I'm wrong with that measurement, but pretty close to that. Um, So it's a larger negative than the 35 millimeter film, which I have the F100 as my 35 millimeter camera and the negatives are smaller. So that's gonna be really important when it comes to printing because you're not gonna be able to print a 35 millimeter negative as large as a medium format neg. So like I've printed a film photo with a medium format camera scanned on a large scanner up to I think like 40 by 60
0: and you can even get
1: a medium format negative scanned at Richard Photo Lab on a drum scanner for even bigger like full wall size print you know like huge Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah so things that you need The Contax camera was how I started. And I actually pieced mine together because they don't make this camera anymore.
0: Right, so I was gonna ask, they don't make them at all. So if you wanna buy one of these cameras, you have to buy it used.
1: Correct, you have to buy it used. It's fairly easy to find, but what's difficult is finding it in the kit that you want. So like I wanted the 80 millimeter lens, the F2 lens with the Contax body. And the camera that I bought, I bought was like in pieces. So it didn't even have the prism, which goes on the top that like flips the, the view. uh So you could, yeah. So like I had to buy that and then the body and the lens and piece it together. I found that on eBay. There's also a group on Facebook called the contact six, four, five group. And people do a lot of times sell those used. Gotcha. Okay. And I have several of them because, um, I just feel like sometimes they break or aren't working correctly and because they are old. And so I just like having three or four on hand that, that I can use as needed.
0: Gotcha. Okay, so you've got your camera body, you've got a lens. Okay. I, I feel like most film photographers really only have one lens. I don't know if that's true or not necessarily because I feel like for digital i feel like everyone's got oh i've got like 10 different lenses that i can use or whatever but for film do they for the contacts specifically do they not make as many different ones do you have more than one lens or you just prefer the 85 because it's the best
1: okay so for the contacts i love the 80 because it's a beautiful portrait lens and it's equivalent to about a 50 millimeter on my d3s gotcha okay um but there are also, there's also the ability to use your, say like your Nikon lenses. I have a ton of them. Like I have a 24, a 50, an 85, a 60 millimeter macro, and then a 70 to 200. And I can use all of those on my F100. Oh, okay. And the F100 is the one that's 35 mil and you can right. autofocus with that.
0: Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So so, so that's so, kind of, would you suggest people start with that to kind of get used to the, used to film and stuff like that? Cause it's a, it's a, that's a much less investment. So, how much does a context run? If you wanted to get a context in the lens and everything you need to start shooting, if you had to guess, how much money do you think you'd spend on that whole kit?
1: So, I would say about thirty five hundred would be a okay. good middle range, and for the F one hundred, I want to say it's only just like a couple hundred dollars.
0: Right. Yeah. You can get. So you can yeah. find those pretty pretty affordably, especially if you get some of the older ones that may not have the autofocus and stuff like that, just to learn how to use it. I feel like you can find those older film cameras for relatively very cheap just to kind of start getting used to.
1: Yeah. So to answer your question, yeah, I mean, I actually would suggest starting with a 35 millimeter. I didn't. Honestly, though, I would suggest it because I just mentored. um, She's a former bride of mine and now she's doing photography. So check her out. Her name's Ashley Landry or Ashley Hooker. And she... Is shooting 35 millimeter to get into film. And I love it because it's gonna be less expensive for the film itself. You're gonna get more shots per roll. And, you know, it's the autofocus. One of the trickiest parts of shooting the contacts is manually focusing it right. and actually getting it in focus, making it sharp. But with the autofocus on those Nikon lenses or, or Canon lenses, depending on what camera you're using, You can eliminate that extra nervous factor and just focus on, am I setting my light meter correctly? Or even you could probably use the in-camera meter. I don't. I like to Mm -hmm. meter. That's another thing you need. You need a light meter.
0: Right. So So explain that. So explain why the light meter is important.
1: Okay. So the light meter is important because unlike a digital camera, you can't see what you're shooting. There's no digital back. I mean, you can put a digital back on your contacts, but you're going to get a digital photograph. Right. So
0: there's no preview. Like you can't look at the camera and say, oh, it's overexposed. Let me adjust whatever you, you know, you've you got. You know, you click it and that's what you get.
1: Right. So you have your your film and your film is going to be a certain speed. So I love the Fuji 400H.
0: Which is essentially like your ISO.
1: Right, right. If I love, you're
0: speaking digital terms. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Yeah. So I love the Fuji 400H speed feet, film because, um, it's so beautiful. The color is absolutely gorgeous. And that ISO is 400. So, gotcha, you know, right. when you go to shoot Fuji 400, it's a 400 ISO film. So you can set your camera like it's talking about on the contacts. I can say, okay, I know this film speed is 400. I know that my aperture is going to be, you know, two, 2.8. And then all you need to do is basically like set your light meter to reflect those numbers and then get your shutter speed.
0: Right. And then that helps you get your proper exposure. That's pretty correct. much how you, you dial it in. So you put, you take the light meter, you hold it up next to your subject on the lit side of their face, hit the button. It gives you a reading. Yes. You dial that into your camera and then you know that what you're going to get more or less is going to be correct. Correct. Right.
1: And within film, there are things that everyone does a little differently. So some people overexpose their film by one stop or two stops and then some people meter differently. But for the most part, that's kind of the process and you really don't need that much gear to shoot film, which is kind of cool.
0: Right. And the only way to really figure those things out is just through trial and error, right? Which is like the good thing about film, what some people really love, but also kind of the maybe potentially frustrating thing or kind of dangerous thing is that it really is trial and error, so that's why you do need a lot of practice before you start doing it professionally. Um, so when it comes to film and buying film and film stock and things like that, so the, the two main factors you're looking at in that are going to be the speed, right, which is like essentially the sensitivity, and then also each film stock just has its own characteristics. Is that a correct yes. way of putting it? Just the color reproduction and the way that it looks, yes. right?
1: That's perfect. Yeah, film speed. Um, So basically like how much light that film's gonna let in and then also the color. So even if you have two film stocks that are the same speed, so say like Portra 400 and Fuji 400, they're going to look differently. So the Portra 400 might be a little bit poppier. it might have warmer tones, more browns, and then the Fuji 400 might be a little bit creamier with like more greens and a little bit of a softer film.
0: Right. So you got to figure out kind of what's best for you, what's going to be best for skin tones, what you're shooting, your look, your vibe, those kinds of things. Absolutely. That's great. So then, where are you buying your film? Because obviously, they, someone somewhere is hopefully still making film. It's kind of a, it's one of the things that's interesting. It's sort of a, it died off for a long time, and it's had a huge resurgence in the past couple years with film photographers. So where's, where have you found the best place to buy your film?
1: I buy my film at unique photo. I work with a contact. Her name is Barbara. She's really great. If anybody's looking to chat with her and I usually buy in bulk. So I usually buy about 500 rolls at a time. So that way, Hey, I get a better rate. If you buy one pack of Fuji 400, it might be I don't know, I'm guessing but like $7 a roll or something like that. Right.
0: And if I buy Which it is a lot.
1: Yeah. And if I buy it in bulk, I might get it for $6 a roll. And right. so I'm saving right there $500.
0: And how many shots are on each roll?
1: Each roll has 16 photographs. Okay. So I always think about it like this, if you add up the cost of the film, the processing, the shipment, all that, each photo I believe is about three dollars,
0: which is why I always joke whenever we shoot. Uh, whenever we shoot with film photographers, that. If I get in one of their shots, that's just an accident. Like, I'm really sorry. But if I get in two of their shots, I'll give them $5 yes. because uh, especially the film shots, the digital shots, I'm a little bit more lenient. Like, oh, sorry, I'm in the back of it. Like, sorry, sorry, I just shoot another one. But film, it's obviously not like that. Yeah. So, Okay, so you so you mentioned the processing. So um, when, with film, obviously you shoot all this stuff. You have all these rolls of film, but you're not just taking these to CVS down the street. You got to send them somewhere special. So what is the sort of process that you go through in order to get the film processed and return to you. Yes.
1: Um, that is such a good point because I think that's a misconception. Like we grew up with, you know, disposable cameras that we could bring to Walgreens. And of course you can probably still bring 35 millimeter film there. I don't know.
0: 35 millimeter. Yeah. yeah. M- but not, not 120. 120. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Gosh, there's a ton of labs out there. Um, my process looked a little bit like this. When I first started shooting film, I went with what everyone was recommending, which was Richard photo lab. But I also tried several other labs and I encourage anyone, no matter what they're doing, like if they're choosing their film stock, if they're choosing their camera, if they're choosing their lab to do multiple tests, like take a roll and send it to Richard Photo Lab, take a roll and send it to the fine lab, like take a roll, send it to Miller's. And once you kind of figure out what you like, then make a decision. Don't just go off of what everyone tells you to do. But I will say the thing that I love about Richard Photo Lab is that they really take care of you. Um, one of my first shoots outside of the, the workshop, I went to Chicago and I really wanted to do a photo shoot in the snow. And in the process of photographing this session, I had no idea that the dark slide was still in my camera. And, oh, and no. some cameras will not let your film advance, but mine does. So I was actually mm-hmm. just shooting blank film. And I think that-
0: Yeah, so everybody doesn't know, so the, basically the dark side, it's its basically a barrier between your film and the lens. So even if you open your shutter, it's not gonna expose the film to the light. So if you have it in there, essentially, even if you think you're taking photos and the film is advancing, no light is getting to the film. So you essentially have blank negatives. Right, so
1: it's like I'm clicking right. the shutter and the shutter's opening, but there's this block between the light and the, sh- the film, so nothing's writing to it. And um, I still remember Cohen called me and he's like, hey- Um, Yeah, your film is all blank. So I was really bummed, you know, but for the longest time I did shoot backup. Everything I shot in digital, I shot in film. or Everything I shot in film, I shot in digital, vice versa. And so I was bummed, but I wasn't devastated because- I did right. have backup which I do recommend especially in the beginning stages. Um, but yeah, Richard Photo Lab is great. They produce an awesome product. I will say they are probably one of the more expensive labs because of mm-hmm. that. Um, whereas they,
0: How does what does the pricing structure look like? Are they charging you per roll, per scan and then are there different things that they can do cuz they're so they're bringing the film in, scanning it, you know, processing mm-hmm. it, scanning it on their Scanners, and then they're sending you back digital files. So they send you the negatives as well, or is that? Yeah, these are all really option? awesome
1: questions. It's so funny because I kind of take these things for granted now because I'm just like used to it. But yeah, yeah, like so you you ship the actual physical roll, which I recommend putting it like in a ziploc bag, wrapping it in bubble wrap, putting it in a box. And Richard actually shows videos of like how they recommend that you wrap and and roll your film and send it off. So then we it gets to their lab, they process it and develop it, and then they scan it. They scan the negatives. To make them digital, they actually do have color packs or color profiles for their clients if you set one up with them. So they actually know what colors Mm. I love and they can tweak the images based on that. And then I will receive the digital files, the cost per roll. Don't quote me on this because I know their prices change sometimes, but I want to say is like in the 23 to $24 range per roll okay. for a large Noritsu scan. So they have two different types of scanners, which again is something okay. that I recommend people to test. Is that a quality difference yeah.
0: or a look Both. difference? Or? Both. Both. So, okay.
1: um, without, I guess like going off on another tangent, cause there's so many aspects of film. Um, they tend to say that the Noritsu can print larger. I've actually okay. tested it with prints and I found that the Frontier looks more smooth at larger prints, but the Frontier is more expensive. So I go with it. I go got with it. the Noritsu, um because it's a faster turnaround. They can scan like six images and have them all up on a screen at once, whereas the Frontier is much slower. Mm, um, and okay. so they do charge more. There's a slower turnaround. And also the Frontier, another reason why I love it so much is because it tends to like fill in the highlights and and darken the shadows so there's just more depth and creaminess i find in the images on the frontier but um yeah so their cost is about like i said 23 24 i guess for a large nuritsu scan um per roll and whereas like maybe another lab like say miller's might be 11 to 12 dollars Per role. Got
0: it. Okay. So that was a pretty significant pretty difference. Pretty significant difference. Yeah.
1: And so that's why I feel like everyone should really do their research and figure out what's important to them. Customer service over there is like unmatched and them helping you through the process is unmatched. But if you're a more advanced mm-hmm. shooter and you feel like confident, you know, you might not need that handholding as much so um but i do love my peeps at richard
0: that's great yeah see this is all great information to know because anybody who may be out there who's considering getting into into film these are the types of things that they probably don't take into consideration obviously you think about okay camera lenses i've got some film and then from there you're pretty much ready to go but then on top of that you've got all these other different factors and things like that so obviously like you said it is all trial and error there's really no way that you, once you develop a role of film, you can't go develop it somewhere else. It's already been developed. You get, you know, one shot at it. So how much time did you give yourself from first jumping into this, going to those workshops, starting your experimentation process to actually offering film photography as a service that you offer to wedding clients?
1: So it's, it's funny to even word it that way because I've never quote offered it. Like I've always just done it when Hmm. I felt like I wanted to which has been pretty much the majority of the time since I started and Mm -hmm. I've just soaked up the cost because I love the way it looks and I feel like it brings business because of the look of the film um but I think maybe the way I could answer that is I didn't stop shooting digital for my sessions completely until about maybe six months ago okay and the reason for that really was because Brad told me and which is such a cool thing and I think everyone should do this like If you're shooting film and you're still making mistakes, make it six months of you not making a single error Hmm. until you give up your digital.
0: Okay, that's a good barometer to go off of, yeah.
1: Because I would go like three, four months and I would make a big mistake and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that I had my digital camera. I mean, some of the mistakes that I've made, like underexposing your film is a pretty huge deal, Mm -hmm. Um, especially depending how much you underexpose it. Like if you underexpose it more than... I'd say three stops on Fuji it's, it's there's yeah. yeah like it's super muddy it's it's really dark and you can't salvage it and um I've spilt um liquids on my film before <laughs>
0: Yeah. And the film is very sensitive to light. Like you have to roll it. If it comes unrolled, it's completely ruined. Like there's lots of, again, there's lots of like little mistakes I've unrolled a roll of film
1: like actually in front of my clients. Like it just fell out of my hands and I'm like, okay, yeah, we're, that's ruined.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, oh, it's so nerve wracking. Um, so, but for weddings, how many rolls of film do you shoot on it for an average wedding?
1: I am a hybrid photographer in the sense that I shoot film when I can. Um, but I'm also a very nervous person and I really lean heavily on digital for my weddings.
0: Okay. Right. Um, which I think is probably smart to a certain y- extent. Yeah. Y-
1: yeah. I, I just, I can't get past it yet, you know? Yeah. But, um, I mean, I've shot up to like 25 rolls for a wedding, which okay. I think someone who shoots only film or majority film on average shoots between 30 and 40 I'm hearing on average. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't shoot my receptions in film. Whereas like maybe say Jose, I'm pretty sure he shoots all film.
0: Right. So that's some of the, uh, disadvantages maybe to film is that the high, the sensitivity to light is set and is according to your film stock. But then the grain that you start getting of, as you go to higher film stock, cause you can get like 1600 is probably the highest you would ever shoot. something realistically and even that is going to be pretty grainy and usually you only want to shoot in black and white but for you know obviously everyone knows for digital you can shoot you know essentially you know 5,000, 6,000, 8,000 ISO and have a relatively clean image just because digital technology has advanced so far but you don't really have that advantage for for film. So you just shooting primarily like details and then portraits and and those types of things, maybe like a shot or two during the ceremony. Is that pretty much what you're, what you're doing?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Like basically when I have enough light, I always have my contacts on me and I'm shooting it as much as I can, like during the ceremony, during the prep, during details. And then once it gets to reception, I might shoot a few cake cutting photos with a video light or Mm -hmm. a few details with the video light. But, um, for the most part, this the aesthetic of the reception changes so much like or the day changes so much when it gets to the reception and i feel like people are leaning more on just getting those like fun candid moments more so than getting those publishable um styled fine art film photos
0: right and you also have you're dealing with the manual focus issue so it's harder when during the reception you can't people standing still as much for you so getting focus and there's just a lot of reasons why you wouldn't do that but you but you are saying that for all of your just normal portrait sessions so engagement sessions and then anything yes. else that like you're saying families and whatever you're shooting film exclusively exclusively correct? film yeah okay and do you find that people they're obviously going to be getting less images if you're shooting film as opposed to shooting digital maybe maybe necessarily I guess if you're doing a small session
1: not really I mean honestly like the issue with digital is that people tend to overshoot me included
0: mm-hmm. like if you're shooting That's a true. digital
1: image you're just like Ch-ch-ch-ch all 10 of those pictures might be the same or maybe two different types of images. Whereas like with the film, because you are paying for every single image and you just don't wanna waste it, I feel like when I'm shooting film, I just, I'll post someone and I'll say, okay, one, two, sh- that's one photo and then say okay now look this way okay chin down a little bit lean in okay 1 2 ch- you know so every right, so image it's a more intentional yeah, a lot more it is. thought goes into each frame but the but the final product is the same so you still get the same right. like for an average portrait session they probably get around 75 photos
0: oh wow yeah and that's, which is how many which is what f- five rolls i rolls? i usually
1: shoot 6 to 7
0: six. Okay. Yeah. And then I'm end up with
1: about 75 images, which has definitely come up. Cause when I first started shooting film, uh, I could not nail the focus on the contacts. It was just so hard. <laughs> right, so right, I'd right. probably throw away half, but, um, now I'm more practiced at it and I can get up. I usually get up to 75. Sometimes I'll have close to a hundred, which I mean, that means I'm only throwing away like whatever 16 times six is minus, you know, a couple of, couple a of photos. Yeah. There. yeah, And, and that is one of the seven, things you're, you know? you're
0: saving yourself a ton of time in not having to call. Yes. essentially, like you said, you may take out one or two or maybe somebody blinked or something weird happened. Yes. But for the most part, you're using everything. There's not a whole lot of editing. Like when you get the files back from the lab, how much, are you doing any editing at all? Is there anything you have to do to tweak those files or are they pretty much ready to go? They're pretty
1: much ready. I definitely am working to get everything right in camera. You're metering, you're making sure your exposure's right. But I do... Tweak the images. So um, I'll, of course, straighten them, crop them on occasion. I'm pretty much cropping in can- camera, but like slight cropping. And sure. then, yeah, like little minor color corrections. Um, and I do liquefy or like, you know, Photoshop images every now and then, again if it's requested.
0: Yeah. And, and that saves you a ton of time on the back end. And because I mean, I think people do spend a ton of time trying to get that film look in Lightroom, and you can spend hours and hours and hours pulling every slider known to mankind to try and get it to look a certain way. When in reality, like there's only so much that you can do to make it look that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. So what would you say is your main reason for wanting to shoot film or digital? Like what is the thing that I've aside, I guess from just the look of it, which kind of initially drew you into it. What are some of the other advantages that you see to shooting digital or sorry, shooting film?
1: I don't know if there is another advantage aside from the way it looks. I mean, it's, to me, a little bit more mentally exhausting because I have to, it is easy, technical. but it is technical. Like every time I pick up the camera, I have to make sure my aperture's right. My shutter dial hasn't spun. My, you know, meter is correct. And I have my dark slide out, you know, like you have to go through those step, steps every time and you can't just check it and see, oh gosh, like I accidentally shot this the wrong way. But I feel like the look of it is truly magical I can't explain it any other way. It makes me feel so excited when I get my film scans in and I download them and I'm just loving the results. So for me, it is the look and it's, I also really like shooting with the camera. I like the way it feels. I like the way things look through it. And whenever I'm shooting with my digital camera, I don't feel that same way. And so that for me is is like the kicker.
0: I think that there's, there's a lot of truth to that. I think that the ability to just slow down, it kind of forces you yeah. to slow down, to think through everything, The sort of that meticulous process. Again, depending, I guess, on your personality, you could see that as a pro or a con. Um, but I do think that there's definitely huge advantages to that in the intentionality. And I think that's why there's a certain look and a certain feel when you get, when you look at a film photographer's work, that you can't really describe what it is. There's not like one specific thing you can pinpoint. Like, oh, this is different about this person versus this person. Even if someone else has very film-like digital images, there's just a very different feel, I think, and aesthetic that you get from the film. And it's a combination, I think, of the technical of what's actually happening, you know, the actual physicality of the film and those types of things. But also, like you said, the mental, the thought process, the intentionality, all those types of things. What I think that I found very interesting that you mentioned is that you're not actually pricing necessarily accordingly. How do, how do you handle that? Because obviously the cost of film over digital is significantly higher. So you're not necessarily doing anything to roll that in or you're just considering that as part of your pricing. In I general. would say
1: when I first started shooting film, I didn't at all. I just okay. ate it. I ate the cost. I decided this was something I was really passionate about. I wanted to learn it and give it a go, even if it meant me losing money or losing profit. Okay. Um, right. because I have developed and fine tuned my skills in film more than I, when I started, I've been able to elevate my prices. It, it does gotcha. differentiate okay. me quite a bit in this area. There's a few film shooters that are also equally as awesome and talented, but I think shooting film does differentiate me to some degree here. And so I have been able to elevate my prices a bit since.
0: Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, there's so many photographers these days. I mean, everywhere there's just so many photographers in the market that it's really hard to stand out unless you have a really specific style or whatever. But by shooting film, I do think that gives you an advantage and kind of puts you in a different level almost. And I think it makes sense. I mean, most film photographers I know are charging higher prices for just as a general rule of thumb than not just because of all the, what we talked about all the things you have to do in order to make yeah. the same amount of profit like you actually have an overhead cost that you're having to deal with for every every single wedding do you have anything specific in any of your contracts or any of your wording or anything that you send to your clients that sort of covers you from a legal standpoint again because we talked about all the different things that can go wrong you know between actually shooting the film loading the film rolling the film mailing the film scanning the film like all those things there's things that can go wrong along the way. Do you have things specifically in your contract that, or that, that you would suggest people have in their contract to help protect them in case something does happen? Yeah,
1: and actually I wanna mention two things that I have in my contract. Um, so one thing that I have is that if anything was to go wrong with, whether it be film or digital, because things can go wrong with digital too, you know, no, no system is flawless. Yeah. But if something was to go wrong and I wasn't able to deliver the images, it would A, kill me, but B, like I would um, obviously refund their money. Um, there, It's so hard because that even seems just so, I don't know, like it's invaluable, you know? And that's why I don't shoot a ton of film for weddings, honestly, because it does scare me so much. Mm-hmm. But like for a session, I would, you know, offer to reshoot shoot the session for sure. And if that wasn't an option, then I would give them their money back. Thankfully that hasn't happened yet. And I'm very grateful for that. Another thing that I do have in my contract is that it's, called, it's basically called artistic style. And it says that over time, my style evolves and changes and basically can't have somebody request their money back based on like artistic style. Cause you know, gotcha. that's okay. a kind of a tough yeah, one too. Smart. And I think mediums do change. Like, Caroline Tran actually she I mentioned her earlier in the podcast. She has been shooting film for years and years I attended propel her workshop and like now she's moving into a space where she's shooting me- more medium format digital and using a preset mm, mm-hmm. that looks like film. And so like gotcha. okay. that's changed yeah. for her and that could change for me or anyone else. And so I think it's good to protect yourself from that as well, not just the loss of the images, but also artistic and style changes.
0: Right, and you're not guaranteeing X number of uh, digital or digital images versus film images. No, or I'm not, like that. but I
1: do think for clients, it's a good idea for them to ask what their photographer's mm-hmm. process is, because everyone's a little different. Like some people shoot all film for their sessions, some people shoot two rolls, or you know, when they feel like it. And so, I think it's a good question for the client to come in and say, like what is your process how much film am I getting and how much digital am I getting
0: and I think that that's really important for people to hear one I mean just talking about film in general I think it's people to important for this conversation for people to know that A, it's going to take some time so be patient do your research do take the due diligence don't just jump right in and it's you know would be ill-advised to just go buy a contacts and then go up to your next your next page shoot and just shoot nothing but contacts um, do you have any other tips or any other things you Think that people should know about to avoid or anything is anybody who's interested in making this leap from digital world into the film world. Any just like pointers or things that you wish you knew when yeah. you're just getting started.
1: Um, these are really basic, but like I would almost say, make a list of things that you need to bring to the shoot until you feel like you're going to remember those things. Because I have done, I think, everything that you can do. Like I've shown up without film. I've shown up with. I've I've shown up without a backup camera, um, without batteries, extra batteries order things in bulk, like order your batteries in bulk, order your film in bulk. There's also another company out there called film supply co owned by Braden Flynn. And he actually works with photographers to give them a discounted rate if they're a member on film. Okay. So that's a really great thing to looking. And, and also if you are a a client of Richard photo lab, they give you a discount on your processing.
0: Okay. That's great. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's good. And just practice. I mean, like specific things I've done, like I mentioned was I've spun my aperture ring, like that dial spins very easily Mm -hmm. on the lens. And so I actually have a habit of like, just basically twisting it before I shoot and make sure that it's on F2 or F2 8 and just always checking the settings. Have a good light meter. Have maybe even a backup light meter on your phone if you ever get in a situation where you forget your light meter. Yeah. I've used the light meter app. There's also oh gosh I can't remember the name of it right now offhand but there's like this little bulb that I just found out about um, that you can buy and plug into your iPhone.
0: Yes I've seen that. Yeah that's really interesting. I
1: can't do you know, remember the name of it?
0: I don't remember off the top of my head. I can
1: Maybe look it up really quick while we're chatting. But basically, you can find it on Amazon and it plugs into the charging port of your iPhone. And it's pretty accurate for the ambient light setting. What is it? Is that
0: the one you're you're talking about, Lumu, L-U-M-U?
1: That's it, that's it, Lumu. And um, it's very accurate for the ambient light if you're metering um, with the bulb and not spot metering, it's not quite as accurate for that, but that's a great backup if you do forget your light meter and way more accurate than just using your iPhone.
0: Uh, question, do you have any resources on your website for people who are looking to get into film? Or if you don't, do you have any suggested places where people can go to kind of learn mm-hmm. all this stuff or a good place to kind of find n- information and knowledge on getting started in film photography?
1: Yeah. I do not have that, which that's something that I'm working on this year is basically creating a resource page for photographers to come and learn and get that insight. But I don't have that yet. So maybe by the time, I don't know if people listen to this in a year. Um, Right now I would suggest Nancy Ray has a film course called Foundations in Film. Okay, I've heard good things about it from actually Ashley Hooker, the girl that I recommended earlier to check out. So she used Nancy Ray's film Foundations in Film course. I also highly recommend Jose's book that I talked about earlier. Yes. I definitely encourage people to sign up for Richard Photo Lab's email list. They send out emails probably once a month with like tips on packaging your film or the difference between the Noritsu and the Frontier, Sc- Frontier Scanner, stuff like that. And, um, and I definitely suggest that people attend at least a film workshop Um, at some point so that they can just connect and learn from somebody who is very professional.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I think there's nothing more valuable, especially with film because it's such a hands-on thing. There's so many different, like, back. it's a lot of back and forth trying to figure that out that I think you're right. having a, some sort of a in-person workshop type experience would probably be the best thing. So that's great. So we'll take all those resources and I'll put those in the show notes, make sure if anybody's interested in those things, then go check all that stuff out. Cool. Um, but one, real quick, before we jump off here, uh, you keep mentioning Jose Villa and I think I, I would be, <laughs> uh, I would be a terrible person if I didn't bring up the fact that you've had Jose on your podcast and I want to give you a chance to talk about your podcast. So you've mentioned it a few times, but let me hear about it because you've had some awesome guests on there, including Jose Villa and Jasmine Starr and Ashlyn Carter, like all these great people. So for real quick, just tell me about your podcast and let everyone know what it's all about.
1: Thanks. Yeah. So the podcast is called Mistakes Make Magic, and it's intended to share with other creatives and entrepreneurs success stories, but also stories about learning and growing through mistakes. And we have been really fortunate to have some really awesome guests on the podcast. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, like you mentioned, a few we've had, gosh, a ton of other really, really awesome guests. So we're on iTunes. You can also go to MistakesMakeMagic.com, and we would love to have anyone tune in, whether they are photographers or not. We're trying to keep it open to different types of industries. Like today, I actually interviewed um, a calligrapher. So we're just trying to keep it. Open so that everyone can learn from different types of mistakes, not just mistakes within their own industry.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, and that's so great. I've listened to a few a few episodes; they're really, really good. And you said your husband helps you produce them, which I think is really cool. I
1: know Brad was like, "Wait, you're going to talk to Ty? Does he want to know about the podcast? Because I mean, (laughs) like, we can get real geeky about that. He's so into the audio. He was such a perfectionist. We tested all kinds of different mics and." He's like me about photography, but about the podcast.
0: <laughs> right. We could literally have an entire podcast episode and maybe we'll have to have him on yes. to talk about that because um, that's one of the reasons I even wanted to start this podcast was because I also love like all the techie stuff and the entire journey of finding all the right equipment and programs and all that sort of stuff has been really enjoyable for me. Um, but yeah, so her, po- her podcast is really great. Um, but in light of that, so it's you know, making mistakes. So before we jump off here, the last thing I want you to hear from okay. you is what is the biggest mistake that you've made in, I want to say film, but let's just say like in your photography career in general.
1: Okay. I am not a big fan of when people give generalizations, um, about their mistakes. So I'm going to give you a specific example. Perfect. I don't know if this is the biggest mistake, but this is the one that's like standing out for me. Most
0: memorable. Yeah. That's great. Yeah.
1: Um, so several years back, I auditioned for creative life and Mm -hmm. I flew out to Las Vegas and I I, they chose like, I think six people to go live and I flew out to Las Vegas and our audition live and it went okay. Like basically what they told me was that my portfolio was good, but I wasn't ready to teach and I wasn't ready to educate. And I actually cried live on creative live. Oh no. It was super embarrassing. Sue Bryce was very honest with me and as she should have been. And I just, I couldn't take it. And, um, I think it was because I wanted it so badly and it wasn't happening. Well, after that, I think it scared me a lot. And I was given some opportunities following that live audition, but I didn't really give myself the chance to push it. Like I was so scared. And so I think for me, one of my biggest lessons has been like, when you fall, take it in, let yourself be sad and like let yourself have that moment. But then like, don't let it stunt you trying again or like moving forward again. Quickly, I shouldn't have let it kick me down for so long. So that's probably something that stands out for me is like just letting fear stand in my way. And I'm really excited to be doing the podcast because I think it has been building my confidence in educating. Like I really want to freaking help people. Like yeah, I mean it's it is this is such a cool industry and there are so many cool industries out there and if everyone could do what they love for a living, honestly, the world would be so much better.
0: Yeah, I've been listening to a lot of Gary Vee stuff lately, you know, and Gary Vee has been talking about that a lot and that, you know, he would much rather be making, you know, 85 grand a year doing something he loves than making 150 grand a year doing something that he hates. And I think that's awesome. And I think that you're, the whole point of the podcast, I think that's a really great theme for a podcast because everybody makes mistakes, no matter who you are, what you Mm do. And I think that ties perfectly into our conversation today about film is that if you want to get into film don't be afraid of it like you're going to make mistakes you're going to mess up obviously you want to be smart use the information we talked about today to make wise decisions and to you know give yourself a backup plan and all those types of things but if it's something you're interested in something you want to do go for it make mistakes educated mistakes and <laughs> grow from it. And then you'll eventually be able to get to a point where because where Catherine is where you're you don't have to bring your digital camera anymore. You're just doing film and you're able to really stand out in the industry. So I think that's a really great place to end. Catherine, thank you so, so much for this conversation. Um, we talked about the podcast. Where are some other places people can find you online if they're interested in seeing some of your work or just following you on social media?
1: Yeah, they can find me online at Catherine And my name is a little bit tricky, but it's G U I D R Y. And my first name is spelled with a C. So KatherineGidry.com or on Instagram. I feel like that's pretty much been the new version of a portfolio. Um, yeah. So those are the best places to find me.
0: That's awesome. So everyone go, make sure you follow her on Instagram, check out the podcast. There's a lot of really great stuff on there. Kind of no matter who you are, you can find a really great podcast episode. So thank you so much, Catherine. It's been an awesome, awesome conversation.
1: Thank you, Ty. It was a pleasure.
0: All right. There you guys have it. That is your episode for today. Big thanks to Catherine for up with this idea for reaching out and for her willingness to be on the podcast please 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 go find her podcast go find her social media her website all those types of things and give her some love if you guys are enjoying this podcast and you want to give back obviously we don't have any sponsors or anything like that but if you really want to help support the show um, it'd be really really awesome if you go over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating over there and I always just love to hear your feedback so go over to my Instagram at Tyler Harrington and shoot me a message let me know what you like about the show if you have any ideas for potential topics and if you want to be on the podcast go on over to my Instagram click on that link in my bio there's a link right there for the submission form to be a guest on the show. And I'd love to have you on. Again, I want people from all walks of life. Anybody, honestly, if you're a human and you're breathing and you interact with technology in your life, I would love to chat with you. So go on over there if you're interested. And that's all we have. This has been Tyler with Ty's Tech Line. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time. Signing off from sunny San Francisco. Your host, with the most, Tyler, the Tyrannosaurus tit- Rex, Harrington. <sighs> okay, bye.